At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. You know, I want to be clear, like all of the protests that we're doing and the disruption that I think will happen over this whole, those whole 10 days, like this is not about us being anti-football. The Vikings are actually looking pretty good to go to the Super Bowl. And that might happen, which would be kind of amazing. But we, you know, this is not about being anti-football. This is about being anti-corporate party that's really extracting from our communities and creating an environment of militarization and just increasing the wealth at the top, at the expense of folks on the bottom. So I just want to be really clear about that. Like, not anti-football, anti, anti the corporatization of all of this. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to Hani Ali from the Black Visions Collective and Veronica Mendez-Moore from the CTUL, the Worker Center of the Twin Cities. They're going to talk about the Super Bowl coming to town, police repression, 10 days of activism, 10 days of resistance, 10 days that could shake the football world. Also... I've got some choice words about the evolution of the activist athlete in the form of Boston Celtics second-year player Jalen Brown. I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards this week with some very surprising subjects. And instead of Kaepernick Watch, I want to bring people's attention this week to a sports story that I frankly cannot believe isn't the biggest story, not just in sports, but in the country. But first, let's speak to Hani Ali and Veronica Mendez-Moore. Veronica and Hani, I'm very anxious to ask you about what's happening in the Twin Cities and the ramp up to the Super Bowl, both by activists and by uh, police in the Twin Cities. Uh, But first and foremost, it's difficult to do this interview and not ask you both as social justice and anti-racist activists what you think of Donald Trump's latest comments and what you think should be done. I mean, his contempt for people of color on manifest display, what should the response be? Um, I mean, I, I think that th- this is just another abhorrent example of the kind of like racist rhetoric that he's been spewing, you know, th- since he's been a public figure. Uh, and it's, 
I want to say it's unbelievable, but it's absolutely not. It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's, it's this kind of language that's clearly racist. Um, it's this kind of thing that like creates the environment, like it shifts the narrative and it creates an environment where like, uh, you know, white supremacists across the country can like grow and build their organizations and build their movement, which is just going to be to the detriment of, of all of us. So it, it's scary. Um, it's scary in that regard. And like, you know, I think all we can, all we can do is just continue to fight back, you know, and that's what we're going to use the Super Bowl to do is, um, is to fight back with our narrative about, uh, about um, investing in communities of color and investing in um, just everyday folk. Honey, I'd, I'd love to hear from you as well on this. Yeah, just to go off of that, like um, this, the white supremacist, the racist rhetoric, the um, misogyny, um, our country is led by a sexual predator. All these things predate um, Donald Trump going into office. Um, and it just exemplifies the issues that have already been there. Um, just like the Super Bowl uh, coming to our city um, is going to make more visible some of the issues have, that have been in our communities and the ways in which uh, corporate corporations um, are, are are willing to, to profit off of the backs of our working uh, class citizens and marginalized communities. Mm. So just to set the stage before we start, can you paint a picture for us, independent of the Super Bowl, of what the Twin Cities look like in 2018? What are the divisions on display? How is the situation there for workers, for people of color, for people who depend on public infrastructure? Because that's really what we're talking about. You know, billions spent on this stadium, billions spent on preparation for the Super Bowl. But independent of those choices, what is it like now in the Twin Cities? You know, Minnesota is home to 18 Fortune 500 companies. So there's a ton of wealth in Minnesota, but it's, you know, the distribution of wealth is obviously completely skewed to the 1%. And in in a place like that, in a place like Minnesota where there's so much wealth, you know, we've got the, the Chamber of Commerce suing the city of Minneapolis over its passage of earned sick and safe time, which is just, you know, folks having the right to be able to take a day off of work and not worry about getting fired or uh, not getting paid when they're sick or when their kids are sick or when they're trying to escape situations of domestic abuse. So, you know, there's a significant amount of problems and our organizations have been on the front line of, of fighting to change that. But, you know, there's just the, the distribution of wealth in the state of Minnesota is absurd. In 2018, um, Minneapolis, I think, is quite similar to most uh, major cities in the United States. Um, I, it, we, we do make up a pretty diverse uh, population. Um, we have we, probably most of our community uh, is low income or, or working class. Uh, a large group of people of color and immigrants come to Minneapolis and, and St. Paul and make a, make a life here. Um, and so this rhetoric that these systems, these institutions are only making it harder for, for our communities to thrive. Um, and we've seen that uh, in 2015, 2016, and so forth. In 2018, I think that people are fed up, and that's the that's the kind of narrative that we, as activists and organizers, like engaging communities, have have uh, heard. Um, people are tired of of having to deal with the the, the white supremacist the institutional structures that that hold them back and are able to uh, allow them to thrive. And let's talk about the Super Bowl. Is the first of all the building of the new Viking Stadium and then the hosting of the Super Bowl? How does that aggravate these divisions that you guys are talking about? The uh, U.S. Bank Stadium was built um, after there were like threats that the Vikings, our football team here in Minneapolis, um, was going to leave, um, and so corporations that like 
together make up the Super Bowl host committee all lobbied um, the, our state legislator to fund using our tax dollars this stadium um, and it was it cost about a uh, billion dollars of state of, of state taxes of um, to build the stadium and so that alone um, builds that division right those that that urgency in in allocation of funding towards a a, a big building um, for entertainment and for corporations to make more money um, and not the allocation towards like education, towards um, housing, towards increasing the minimum age so that workers can can survive off of, of the, their income. Things like that already divide um, our communities, the, the normal people from these corporate corporations who are exploiting uh, our communities. And uh, uh, I, I think that the, the Super Bowl coming here, it unmasks the reality uh, that 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 we know exists about the distribution of wealth and power in the state. I mean, this is there's going to be ten days, not just one day. There's going to be ten days mm-hmm. of these massive corporate parties, you know, that cost a thousand dollars to get into, um, and the city is going to be used as a playground for the rich, while other folks are are suffering in poverty. People are are facing homelessness, um, and and again, like like Hani said. Just the the way that the resources in the state are being invested uh, could be different. You know, the Super Bowl could the Super Bowl host committee could decide to leave a different kind of legacy in the state of Minnesota. But right now, it's going to be a legacy of a corporate party, a ten-day corporate party, and corporations getting even wealthier. Right. So it sounds like it's going to be like a prom for the one percent during those ten days. Just a big old party and everybody wearing their finest duds, but. I've been to a, uh, several different Super Bowls, and I know that the other side of that is police repression, suppression of ability to, to organize, to move around, no-go areas in terms of public spaces. I really hope that's not going to be the case in the Twin Cities. Can you tell us what that part of it, the the repressive apparatus part of it, the police part of it, what is that going to look like? It's sad to tell you that it is going to be like that. I think oh. um, it's actually going to be one of the most uh, security-heavy Super Bowls that we've ever seen. Um, the Super Bowl that is marked as a national security status event. The only other events in the world that are 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 um, that the U.S. the U.S. is a part of that have this status are the inauguration of our president and the world leader events. So like events around the U.N. and things like that. And so what this means for our security measures here uh, during the Super Bowl week, they're going to be putting up robust CCTV networks in the metro area. So we've already, we saw that months before the Super Bowl. Mm, that's closed circuit TV networks. And we're also having a uh, – they also have a security perimeter around the stadium that goes up to 15,000 feet, um, and it's 12 to 16 inches uh, of a barrier um, to to kind of protect the, protect that that building that was invested by our state do- dollars. Um, the area will be highly policed as well. Um, the our, our Minnesota Police Department only has about 800 or 900 uh, police officers, but there will be 3,000 police officers in the Twin Cities during the Super Bowl. And so they're bringing in officers from across the state. Um, the National Guard was deployed, or is going to be deployed during the week. There's also going to be establishment of a clean zone which means there will be restrictions around certain activities in that area. Um, people who live in, the, in this community, people who live in those areas are not able to do certain things during the, during the time of the Super Bowl. And like, just like the inaccessibility of the city uh, to, to people who, who live here and who made this city who, what it is, um, it's just like, it's, it's unacceptable. 
Another thing is um, the the light rail station that, for public transit that people use um, on Super Bowl day will only be accessible to ticket holders. Mm. Uh, so that just leaves thousands of people unable to get to where they need to get to um, because they rely on, on public transit, which is already inaccessible for so many people because they aren't able to pay uh, what it costs to ride it every day. We clearly to define where these corporations are invested in. They're invested in allowing um, people who have all this money to come into our city and use our our um, our resources for free when they wouldn't even allow people who need it to be able to ride that transportation for free. The one other thing I wanted to add was um, was just that in, in addition to all of the police and state troopers and the National Guard, there also is going to be ICE agents, um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents are going to be here. And Minneapolis is a sanctuary city. Uh, where, you know, the the police are not doing the work of immigration, but this is going to be just a fundamentally different situation. And we have no idea right now how that's going to impact undocumented immigrants in the in the city of Minneapolis. Yeah. And, and as you talk about this ramping up of police, it's difficult to not think about uh, the memory of Philando Castile. How real are those concerns as we transition to talking about the activism in the lead up to the Super Bowl? How real are those concerns that this kind of police presence can turn violent very quickly? Say, um, we've, we've seen with um, the increased militarization of police that the, um, the acts of violence towards black and brown communities has increased as well. Um, when we see an influx in policing, when we see these power structures come up uh, against our, our communities in higher numbers, we're seeing more violence uh, inflicted on our communities. And I would say the same thing is going to happen during the Super Bowl. We're, we're going to see an influx of um, federal agents, uh, ICE agents, uh, police officers, you know, the National Guard. All these extra policing measures um, are, are can't avoid the fact that, like, Black and brown communities are stopped and searched and, and just like criminalized at a, at a higher rate on an everyday basis. But with more police presence, um, that, that criminalization is, off, is going to be seen um, more, more visibly. Mm-hmm. So now we've set the stage. We, we know what the Twin Cities are going to look like in the 10 days leading up to the Super Bowl. Uh, it sounds like if you're wealthy, it's going to be a grand old time. And if you happen to actually live in the Twin Cities, it's going to be very rough going. So what is the activist plan to try to raise awareness to what's happening in the Twin Cities and to leverage the spotlight of the Super Bowl to talk about bigger issues? What's the battle plan? Well, you know, there are a number of pieces and there are a number of different organizations and um, and movement groups that are that are working together on this, um, but I think it, the, you know, the plan is to really is to use the spotlight on the Twin Cities to highlight, um, to highlight the the racial disparities, to highlight the corporatization of our of our communities, to highlight militarization, and and, and really like create a stark contrast and showing like all of this money could be invested in actually creating creating healthy and positive communities. And so the way we do that is by disrupting the narrative that they're creating by actually disrupting what they're doing. And so we have, we have uh, collectively planned um, a number of different actions and, and protests in different places and in different ways to highlight these issues. And, you know, it is important to us uh, to make some public sort of long-term demands of corporations in our, in our, that are in our state um, and also those who come into our state to extract wealth um, that we need to have, we, we need to be having transparency and accountability around how public uses are being allocated, and we need to not have public resources allocated 
to to massive corporations that are coming to town and to fund this sort of thing. Like we need that money instead to go towards our communities. We want to send that broad message, but there are also some really specific concrete demands that are being made. Um, for example, I mentioned before the the lawsuit that the Chamber of Commerce has um, against the city of Minneapolis for, for the Ernst and Safe Time Ordinance, and we're calling on them to drop that. Um, mm-hmm. We're calling on the Chamber of Commerce to support a $15 an hour minimum wage in St. Paul with no carve-outs and to ensure a robust funding regime to make sure that that, that actually happens. And I mean, there's a whole other piece to this that, that I, haven't, I hadn't even mentioned yet, which is about wage theft. Like we traditionally see in massive sporting events and events of this kind, like a ton of wage theft because you've got, you know, you've got so many different sub, sub, subcontractors that are being contracted to do this massive amount of work. And a lot of them are fly-by-night operations. They disappear. They don't pay people, and there's nothing people can do about it. And so we're also calling on the Super Bowl host committee to create a bond to make sure that a $500,000 bond to make sure that if any workers experience wage theft and then their employer disappears, that there's a fund that the city can administer that actually allow workers to get paid. We want to see U.S. banks, you know, this from the U.S. Bank Stadium, we want to see them investing in the public schools in St. Paul. And instead of trying to evade taxes, uh, we want them to actually put that money into the St. Paul schools. So there, there are a number of different concrete things where we are, um, a number of us are actually talking directly to some of these corporations and some of the entities to try to get specific and concrete things changed before we get to the Super Bowl. Um, but there is just a lot, you know, overarching. This is this isn't just about a one-time U.S. bank kicks in some money or the Chamber of Commerce does something good on policy for for working people of color. But there's also about a long-term is like wanting to see a long-term change and shift in the way that um, in the way that our economy and our communities work. Wow, that's that's, that's really powerful stuff. And I, I guess I wanted to, I wanted to ask you. Uh, just at the end, if you had any last words for folks who uh, were thinking of coming into the Twin Cities to help you protest, to aid your protest, to, and any message or what people can do if, say, they can't come to the Twin Cities but they want to act in some way in solidarity with what you're going to have to be going through over the course of those 10 days? I think an act of solidarity uh, in the least bit would be like following our Facebook pages, um, Setul, S. CTUL on Facebook, um, as well as Black Visions Collective on Facebook. We have, like like Veronica mentioned, a set of demands. Um, as a coalition, there are multiple organizations at the table in our coalition who each have demands, um, but we have demands that we all kind of like united behind to reveal the bid for the Super Bowl. Um, the city and the Super Bowl host committee uh, decided um, to not make public the, the deal that they made, the amount of public dollars that went into the, the Super Bowl and to bring it to our community. Um, we're just asking to, to reveal that bid. We want to know exactly how much how much of our money is going into this. We also want to, to going forward, we know that the, the building of this U.S. Bank Stadium is just the beginning. The city is, is preparing to sell our city as a, a sporting event hub. We're going to continue to see an increase in corporate interest in our in our city. Um, so we're asking for a commitment and transparency and decision-making oversight for other large-scale events. 
and and we're also asking to uh, around the issue of reduced harm to our to black and brown communities we're asking so we're asking that local law enforcement do not uh, cooperate with ice and so no reporting to ice agents um, we're also asking that sex trafficking victims be treated as victims. We're going to see uh, with the Super Bowl uh, comes a, 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 an increase in sex, uh, sex trafficking um, incidents. Um, Duluth, a major city in Minneapolis and Minnesota, is a, is a hub uh, where sex tra- trafficking victims get brought to our state. And so we're going to see an increase in, in, in uh, the victimization of like specifically black youth who are going to be uh, trafficked through our state. And also just the decriminalization of sex work in general. Um, we're going to see an increase uh, of, of violence to people who, who, who do sex work um, on a daily basis because of the people, the, the misogyny and the, the toxic masculinity that the, these type of sporting events bring to our communities. Yeah, and, and I'll also add at other Super Bowls, you've seen police sweeps of sex workers and um, illegal jailing of sex workers under the guise of fighting sex trafficking. This is powerful stuff. I'm so glad that you both took the time to come on the show. Thank you so much. Before you go, just something I I ask every guest is I like asking folks, particularly folks who who are activists, who are people who try to make the world a better place, like what kind of music you're listening to these days because to keep you going, to keep you motivated, uh, to keep you on point in what I'm sure is a tense time. All right. um, I think a song that... uh... I'm listening to right now is Bruno Mars and Cardi B finesse remix. Yeah, it's a great song. We're doing the right mood. got some choice words about what may be the evolution of the activist athlete. Okay, look, so roughly 18 months ago, as Colin Kaepernick was peeling back people's eyelids, I was told by a friend at Cal Berkeley that there was an NBA rookie yet to play a single minute of pro ball who was going to rock the sports politics landscape. He said to me, he's NBA talent, no question, but he's also like those political athletes you write about. A lot of the same professors and lecturers at Cal who've been dialoguing with Cap rave about this kid, end quote. He told me the young man's name, Jalen Brown, and I immediately put it out of my mind for two reasons. First, Kaepernick was setting the sports world on fire back then, and NBA rookies who impressed their college professors were not exactly at the forefront of my mind. Secondly, he'd been drafted by the Boston Celtics, and if you know me, you know that I am some combination of genetically or behaviorally conditioned to ignore anyone doing anything while wearing that cursed Celtic green. I had just had too many young memories of Larry Bird tearing out my heart and felt too set in my ways to change. But damn, was I wrong. Jalen Brown, now in his second year and already a budding star, just gave an extensive interview with The Guardian and everything that those professors pointed out were on display. A sense of history, a belief in resistance, a systemic critique of racism and poverty, and a contempt for a certain orange demagogue who uses race to rule. 
People, of course, should read the entire interview and all the props in the world to Donald McRae for uncorking an article called Jalen Brown, Sport is a Mechanism of Control in America. Now, most of the media, though, has missed what is truly bracing about this interview, focusing on Brown's statement that Donald Trump is unfit to lead this country. But frankly, that's small potatoes compared to the aforementioned systemic critique of racism and poverty that Brown, again at age 21, brings to the table. It is common currency now to call out Trump's bigotries, implying that if only he wasn't in office, oppression would suffer a mighty blow. Brown does not support that wafer-thin view. Instead, he references a thesis he wrote at Berkeley about the intersection of sports, race, and social mobility. Here's what he said. Quote, There's this idea of America that some people have to win and some have to lose, so certain things are in place to make this happen. Some people have to be the next legislators and political elites, and some have to fill the prisons and work in McDonald's. That's how America works. It's a machine which needs people up top and people down low. Even though I've ended up in a great place, who is to say where I would have been without basketball? It makes me feel for my friends and my little brothers or cousins that they have no idea how social mobility, their social mobility, is being shaped. I wish more and more that I can explain it to them. Just because I'm the outlier in my neighborhood who managed to avoid the barriers set up to keep the privileged in privilege and the poor still poor, why should I forget about the people who didn't have the same chance as me? End quote. As far too many people have set the bar of the resistance lower than Bill Crystal's big toenail, or believe that a terrific speech by Oprah means that her presidential prospects demand immediate debate, this statement by Brown raises the level of discussion at a time when it is sorely needed. Without a broader critique of the injustices baked into the DNA of this country, and without examining how these issues manifest themselves in the 21st century, true change is impossible. What's made Kaepernick so threatening is that his perspective on police violence is not one of saying, well, there are good cops but bad apples. It's a systemic critique. Similarly, Jalen Brown is saying that if you want to understand Trump, racism, or poverty, or even sports, you need to grasp how the system is designed so certain people fail in order to have lucrative for-profit prisons operate at 100% capacity. You need to understand that access to a great education will never be offered as long as certain ununionized fast food restaurants need to have someone at the cash register. You need to wrestle with how manifestly twisted it is that the way out of this trap is seen through the prism of sports instead of a relentless struggle for even a measure of justice. Jalen Brown could mark the beginning of the evolution of the activist athlete. Based upon his ideas, he could be attempting to bring a lot of other players along for the ride. And I never again will disregard this new generation, even if they happen to be wearing the Celtic green. And now a quick word from The Nation magazine. They are the sponsor of this podcast, and they have a terrific issue out this week. We have a piece by Natasha Leonard, one of my favorite writers there on Black Panther prisoners. And we've got Eric Reedy on Syrian refugees in Lebanon. It's really a remarkable issue, and once again, the nation is doing the kind of journalism that is absolutely indispensable at this moment in our history. So please support The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and remember, when you support The Nation, you are supporting the continuation of this podcast. And now, back to the show. 
And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. This one, it's like we're in Bizarro World, the Superman land. The world has turned on its head because my Just Stand Up Award goes to LeVar Ball. And my Just Sit Your Ass Down Award goes to one of my favorite people in sports, Steve Kerr. Let me explain. First and foremost, LeVar Ball, I'm just so tired of the hate that he's getting this time for two different things. One, saying that there was a problem in Los Angeles with Coach Luke Walton, that he was losing the team. And two, with the fact that his two younger sons, LiAngelo and LaMelo, he took them to play ball in Lithuania, homeschooling LaMelo and pulling LiAngelo out of UCLA. They're, I believe, 19 and 16 at this point. Look, the thing that bothers me so much is that nobody says anything about youth athletes who are 16 and 19 making money if they happen to be in upper-class sports, whether you're talking about golf or tennis uh, or horseback riding or gymnastics. There, you can be 14, 15 years old. Nobody says anything. No one says anything about child actors. But when it comes to basketball and football, there is condemnation, and I think there's two reasons for that. Um, The first and foremost is that these sports are these multi-billion dollar leviathans, and in many respects, the modern neoliberal university in this country depends on these sports as revenue producers. So there's a lot of pressure on families to go this route. The second reason is that there's more exploitation because these sports are dependent on often poor black labor. And what LeVar Ball is doing is trying to create a different kind of paradigm. You may not like the way he does it, but you know what? I am so glad that whether it's the sneakers, big baller brand, or whether we're talking about uh, sending his kids to Lithuania, or whether we're talking about him trying to create a sports league that can act as a minor league for players to develop their talent, that he's upsetting the setup because the setup itself uh, is something truly disgusting. And so big Just Stand Up award to LeVar Ball. Lord help us all. Uh, Just Sit Down Award goes to Steve Kerr for saying the following. So I've talked to to, uh, people in the media this year. I said, why do you you guys have to cover that guy? They say, well, we don't want to. Nobody wants to. But our our bosses tell us we have to um, because of the ratings, because of the readership. So somewhere, um, I guess it's in Lithuania, LeVar Ball is laughing at all of us. People are eating out of his hands for no apparent reason other than, you know, he's become like the Kardashian of the NBA or something, and, and that sells. And that's what is true in politics and entertainment and now in sports. Um, it doesn't matter if there's some, any substance involved with an issue. Um, it's just can we make it really interesting um, in a f- for no apparent reason. Steve Kerr, I love you, Coach, but I can't stand this idea that you're saying, oh, LeVar Ball gets too much attention, and then you're going to spend your news conference giving him just more attention. That's not how it works. The second thing is you're mad at LeVar Ball for saying something about the Lakers and losing the team, but i, I got to tell you, after LeVar Ball said that, as of this recording, the Lakers have won three in a row, in court, including a victory over San Antonio. I mean, maybe that actually focused the team. Maybe. Maybe it didn't. But when you're dealing with a very young team like the Lakers, and they are a very young team with a very young head coach, maybe every kick in the ass helps. 
And I don't know. I, I just really feel strongly that for Steve Kerr to be like, no parents of players would ever say anything on my team. It's like your team has been to three straight finals and everybody's in their late 20s or early 30s. It's a different operation with the Lakers. And lastly, there's something bizarre about Steve Kerr, who's been one of the most beautifully outspoken people in the sports world against Donald Trump, going from Donald Trump to LeVar Ball. And you see that a lot, like this kind of false equivalency as if like, oh, they're both blowhards. They both just want attention. They're both destructive people. One of them's the president. The other's LeVar Ball. Let it go, Steve. And maybe just sit down. And after you sit down, don't hesitate to be a guest on this show. Hint, hint. So this week, instead of doing Kaepernick Watch, I'm going to read a story by Annalisa Morelli because I cannot believe this hasn't gotten more publicity. So let me just read this and take it in. Serena Williams, the world's greatest tennis player and new mother, graces the cover of Vogue magazine for February along with her daughter, Alexis Olympia Ohanian Jr., who at three months is the youngest Vogue cover model ever and she can already list one Grand Slam win while still in utero. In the cover story, Williams talks about her new life as a mom and wife, her career ambitions, and how motherhood will affect as in help each of those things. The piece also shares a terrifying episode in which Williams tells the story of delivering her child, the days that followed, and how she risked dying. After an emergency C-section, Williams encountered what is an often fatal complication, blood clots. She also had to fight to be taken seriously, Vogue reports. The next day, while recovering in the hospital, Serena suddenly felt short of breath. Because of her history of blood clots and because she was off her daily anticoagulant regimen due to her recent surgery, she immediately assumed she was having another pulmonary embolism. She walked out of the hospital room so her mother wouldn't worry and told the nearest nurse between gasps that she needed a CT scan with contrast and IV heparin, a blood thinner, right away. The nurse thought her pain medicine might be making her confused, but Serena insisted and soon enough a doctor was performing an ultrasound of her legs. I was like, a Doppler, she remembers telling the team. I told you I need a CT scan and a heparin drip. The ultrasound revealed nothing, so they sent her for the CT, and sure enough, several small blood clots had settled in her lungs. Minutes later, she was on the drip. I was like, listen to Dr. Williams, end quote. That's right, only hours after giving birth through a major surgery, Williams needed to convince the medical personnel that she was in need of care and run them through what she needed. Though she luckily survived, Williams became one of the estimated 150,000 women in America to experience serious illness or near-death experiences around pregnancy every year. Because her history of blood clots made her aware of the symptoms, Williams was able to save her own life. Unfortunately, between 700 and 1,200 American women every year don't live to describe the experience of giving birth. With a shockingly high maternal mortality rate, several times the levels of other rich countries. Williams' story will likely sound familiar to many women, and all the more to black American women, who are three times more likely to die or suffer serious illness from pregnancy-related causes than white women, with at least 40 deaths per 100,000 live births on average, compared to 14 for white mothers. That means a black woman has a higher chance of dying during or right after pregnancy than a woman in developing areas of Central Europe or Eastern Asia. 
What's more, what Williams had to go through is especially revealing about the medical bias faced by black women. This is not just something that affects black mothers of lesser means. It happens to wealthy, highly educated ones who are acutely aware of medical symptoms. All right, I'm going to stop right there and just say, wow. I mean, I know when it comes to the news cycle in countries these days and the daily outrages that take place uh, in Washington, D.C., sometimes a lot of stories get overlooked. But when you think about Serena Williams almost just died, it seems like at that point you have to get off the media train, put your feet on the ground and say, what is happening with healthcare in this country? And why does healthcare in this country treat black women in such an abhorrent manner? It's a national disgrace. And it's something that I wanted to raise attention to. And now a quick word from the other podcast that is produced and hosted by The Nation magazine, thenation.com, and that is Start Making Sense, hosted by the great John Wiener. Folks, please check out this podcast. It is politics without the boring parts. Their guests are remarkable. The talk is crackling. I listen to it every week. It posts at thenation.com every Thursday. And as my co-producer David Tigabu says, it is the second best podcast put out by The Nation magazine. And now, back to Edge of Sports. Well, that's all for this week's show. First and foremost, before I give the old thank yous, I want to give an extra huge thank you to our latest patrons of the Edge of Sports podcast. You just have to go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod if you want to help us continue to do this show and expand it. But thank you so much to Alyssa Gale, Emmanuel Demisu, Dan Mapes, Riordan, Cliff, Richard Wark, Patrick Kaisel, Saron Warku, Adam Jones, Eric Postman, Allison Eady, Tess Fabak, Dragada Woods, Johanna Russ, Kale A Superfood, Tom Connolly, Tal Levy, Dylan Goings, and person I used to do a radio show with. So happy to see his name pop up. Mean Mark Barry. So thank you everybody for listening this week. Thank you to my co-producers David Tigaboo and Dangerous Daniel Baker. Thank you to The Nation Magazine. Thank you for everybody who's been going to patreon.com slash edgeofsports. If you want to talk to me, Dave Zirin, you can always catch me on Twitter at edgeofsports or email me at edgeofsports at gmail.com. If you want to listen to back episodes of the show, just go to edgeofsportspodcast.com and please subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Leave comments, leave a rating. All of that makes a huge difference for the show. Stay frosty, everybody. We are out of here. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker. 
engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.